Dean of the Faculty of Science, Professor Becky Mamba, members of the University Executive Leadership, in particular I'd like to welcome Professor Marwala, our DVC Research, and Professor Kinterberger, who's also the former Dean of the Faculty of Science, and now our Registrar Designate. The staff and students of the Department of Mathematics in the Faculty of Science and other colleagues from the faculty as well as from other faculties within the university as well as a number of our own students, particularly postgraduate students. I also take this opportunity to welcome our colleagues from our sister institutions. I believe there are a number of colleagues here from the University of Pretoria as well as from WITS and welcome you all. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and privilege to welcome you all on this very auspicious and very significant occasion for the University of Johannesburg, the professorial inauguration of Professor Michael Henning, one of the A-rated researchers at the University of Johannesburg and the country's foremost and most distinguished mathematicians. In particular, I would also like to welcome Anne Henning, Professor Henning's wife, and John and Alicia, son and daughter of Professor Henning. You're all most welcome. A professorial inauguration as such as the one we'll be participating in today is truly a significant occasion in the life of a university as an institution of learning and scholarship. It represents the formal induction of a senior member of faculty into the ranks of the academic professoriate. Now you may be wondering why is Professor Henning uh, delivering an inaugural address now when he qualified and graduated and became a professor many years ago? The University of Johannesburg has a policy that even when we import professors from other universities, which we'd be very happy to have done so, we do ask our newly inducted professors also to deliver an inaugural address. So it's more than once that Professor Henning is delivering an inaugural address, but I'm sure on a different topic as well. Um, it's also a culmination, I'm sure he's addressed today, of a rigorous process of scrutiny and examination. As a leading institute of higher education, the University of Johannesburg goes to great lengths to make professorial appointments that will ensure the status and quality of the university is maintained for the next generation. Our professors are truly significant members of our university community. As members of Senate, they guide our decision-making around core academic affairs. They represent their disciplines both within and outside of the university, in academic contexts, and in broader professional and social contexts. They also offer academic leadership. They're responsible for nurturing junior staff and supporting them as they mature into the next generation of our academics. They also ensure that we offer our students a quality learning experience. All of this, of course, requires qualities that are in addition to the erudition which we primarily associate with the professoriate. It requires professors and academic leaders who also show a human face, who combine academic leadership with concern and care for their fellow staff and students. And ladies and gentlemen, by all accounts, Professor Henning personifies those wonderful human attributes and qualities.
Professor Henning has chosen for his inaugural address this evening the title, Graph Theory is Everywhere. My own background, unfortunately, is in the human sciences. And therefore, I can't profess to be a scholar and, and, and a master in this topic of graph theory. But I have great respect and admiration for Professor Henning's accomplishments and therefore look forward to what will undoubtedly be a presentation of great erudition and scholarship. And I also believe a presentation that is imbued with a great sense of humor. The procedure for this evening is Professor Mumba will introduce Professor Henning and then we will have a response to Professor Henning's inaugural address after he delivers his address. But unfortunately, our respondent for this evening, Professor Maynard, who is a professor of mathematics at the University of Victoria in Canada, is unable to be with us this evening. However, Professor Kinterberger is going to deliver her response. Um, I was going to read her response. So now I call upon Professor Becky Mumba to introduce Professor Henning. Thank you very much. Deputy Vice-Chancellor, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I'm happy to read the narrative CV of Professor Michael Henning. Michael Henning was born in Kaffrenate, the fourth oldest town in South Africa, which which is a little smaller than Johannesburg. <laughs> he was schooled in the old province of Northern Transvaal in Pretoria, and he completed his last three years of high school in Wazulu Natal at Westville Boys High School. Michael obtained his PhD at the University of Natal in 1989. In January 1989, he started his academic career at the University of Zululand before accepting a lectureship in mathematics at the former University of Natal in 1991, January. In the year 2000, Michael was appointed full professor at the University of Natal, which later merged with the University of Deben Westville to form the University of Guazulu Natal in January 2004. After spending almost 20 years at the University of Guazulu Natal and one of his predecessors, the University of, of Natal, Michael moved to the University of Johannesburg in May 2010 as a research professor. Michael's interests are in the field of graph theory, which is a major area of combinatorics. He has made significant contributions to several topics in graph theory and hypergraph theory, including colorings, matchings, independence, domination theory, identifying codes, transversals and digraphs. Michael is regarded as a world leader in domination theory in graphs. Over the last few years, Michael has combined forces with Professor Anders Yo, currently at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, where they focused their research on the interplay of total domination in graphs and transversals in hypergraphs. Michael and Angus Anders recently co-authored a book in 2013 entitled total domination in graphs. Michael was awarded an international award, a whole medal in 2000 that recognizes outstanding research achievements by members of the Institute of Combinatorics and its applications who are not over the age of 40. 
Only two hall medals were awarded in 2000, the other recipient being an Australian mathematician. In 2009, Michael was the recipient of the NRF A rating, which is reserved for researchers who are unequivocally recognized by their peers as leading international scholars in their field for their high quality and impact of their research outputs. Michael has been a plenary and invited speaker at several international conferences in countries such as USA, Germany, France, Poland, and Slovakia. He's a prolific researcher, having published over 320 papers to date in international mathematics journals. He has over 3,000 journal citations to his articles, and Michael serves as an editor of five international journals, including co-managing editor of the Japanese-based journal of graph and combinatorics. In his youth, Michael was a keen chess player having played at provincial level. He enjoys running and has won six consecutive KwaZulu-Natal cross-country titles as a veteran over the age of 40 from 2004 to 2009. Michael is happily married to Anne, the wife of his youth, for more than 20 years. They have two children, John and Alison. John is in grade 9 at Parkton Boys High School and Alison is in grade 7 at Parkview Senior Primary. I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, you agree with me that this is a world-acclaimed scholar who will be giving us an inaugural address this evening. Without any further ado, let me ask uh, Professor Michael Henning to come and give the inaugural address. Right, members of the Executive, and Deputy Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs, Professor Parekh, Registrar, Professor Kinterberger, and uh, Executive Dean, Professor Mohamed Becky, uh, my colleagues from our neighbours, Wits and Nisa, University Pretoria, and my UJ colleagues, and of course, friends and family. Thank you for for coming, for joining me at this lecture this evening. For some of you, it may have been quite some time since you've been to mathematics lecture. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's my job tonight is to convince you that graph theory, which is the field in which I do research in, is everywhere. I'm going to start off by asking you two questions. In fact, you have to do a little bit of work tonight. So I hope you didn't think you were coming to relax. The first question I'm going to pose to you is this. Suppose we all shake hands with each other. So everyone shakes hands with everyone else. How many handshakes took place? Let me bring this little thing on the top here. So give me while I get rid of this little box. So that's the question. How many handshakes take place? We all shake hands with each other. Okay, why are you thinking about the second question is, let's suppose that uh, you take a Sunday morning stroll around Emerentia Dam, just a few minutes away. There's Emerentia, Sunday Hill Park. And on your walk, there's a river that flows through the little nature park. And there's a few islands. 
And what you'd like to do or footpaths, what you want to do is you want on your stroll, you want to visit every bridge or footpath exactly once. Can you do that? So similar to a problem we had back in the 1700s in Königsberg, Yana had a river that flowed through through the town and it divided the town into, into two. So there were four land masses and they were connected by seven bridges and the challenge was to walk across every bridge exactly once and return to the starting point. So there's a picture of it. You've got the four land masses, this is the, the, the city, and the land masses are connected by different bridges. So you want to walk across every bridge exactly once. You can't repeat any bridge. So what do these two questions have in common? Well, both of them can be answered using a branch of mathematics that we call graph theory. So let me explain to you what a graph is. A graph, if you've got any collection of objects, some of which are related, you've got a graph. And more precisely, a graph is a, a finite set of... This is this should be red, but it's kind of orange, which is very good. Uh, <laughs> so graphs are a finite, non-empty set of objects which we call vertices, together with a possibly empty set of unordered pairs of, of distinct vertices which we call edges. So you've got a, a vertex set consisting of a set of vertices, you have an edge set, which is a set of all the edges. Now I see my graph theory is that you can visualize what you do. You can depict it by means of a graph or a diagram in which every vertex is represented by a point. We often draw it as a small circle. And an edge you can represent by a line segment or curve that join the corresponding points. For example, if I gave you a set of four vertices, v1, v2, v3, and v4, and these four edges, you can visualize what you do. You can draw a graph where the vertices are represented by those four dots, and the edges you can represent by line segments or curves. In this case, I've just drawn a straight line segment. And you represent the, the vertices by dots, and for example, v1, v2, just connect those two with, with the line segment. There's a few parameters you associate with the graph. I'm going to mention one or two. One is the degree. It's the number of edges instant with the vertex. And it's very easy to compute that. So you take any vertex, you simply count the edges instant with it, and that will be its degree. In this particular graph, if you count the number of edges, you get 11. And if you just sum the degrees, 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 1, and so on, that sum will be 22, which is exactly twice the number of edges. And this isn't a coincidence. You have what's called the handshaking lemma in graph theory, which is that any graph that you give me, if you sum the degrees of the vertices, you'll always get twice the number of edges. Or in the mathematical language, if you sum the degrees of the vertices, all the vertices in the graph, you'll get twice the edges. And the reason for that is very simple. Because every edge joins two vertices. So when I sum the degrees of a vertex, every edge is counted twice, one for each of its ends. And that's the proof. So let me talk, last talk, you have to give at least one proof, so I thought I'd give you a proof. <laughs> Why is it called the handshake lemma? Well, you can represent a group of people by a graph. 
the people would represent uh, in the vertices, and if two people shake hands, we will connect them with an edge. So in this particular case here, that particular person shook two hands, that person wasn't very sociable, <laughs> that person shook five hands, and with this understanding the edges, the number of edges means the total number of handshakes. The degree of a vertex is the number of hands the corresponding person shook. So the sum of the degrees would written the total number of hands that were shaken. And what the handshake number says is that the number of handshakes is equal to twice the number of handshaken. The reason being, of course, that in every handshake there are two hands involved. So that's the, the handshaking then. So let's go back to the question I asked you. If we all shake hands with each other, how many handshakes took place? Well, let's suppose there were seven of us. And you have your complete graph, these are the seven people, and you represent that with the complete graph. And if you count the digital, it'll be 11. And in our case, I think there's about 26 of us, if you count the edges, you should get 325. But there's a very simple formula for doing it. Um, the vertices, it will just be every two are joined. So the number of ways of choosing a pair from n is n choose 2, or n times n minus 1 over 2. So you can very quickly work it out. What about the, the Kunzberg problem? This is also a graph theory problem. You represent the land areas by vertices, and you join them with however many bridges connect them. So A and B are joined with two edges. And A and D, those values connected by one bridge, you join them with one edge, and you get a graph. And the problem now is, you want to start anywhere, and without lifting your pen, can you trace all the edges? Turns out you can't, and you can very easily prove it. Now, many real-life situations can be represented by a graph. You just need any collection of objects that are related in some way. So cities, you want to maximize flights between different cities, perhaps factories with communication links, designing electronic chips. You've got nodes for which are joined by wires. If wires cross, you'll get a short circuit. So given the connections, you want to minimize the crossing of the wires. You can't avoid it, you design a new layer of your chip. And a lot of the chips have many layers, but you want to minimize that. And then sociologists, uh, if you've got a group of people that exert influence on each other, you can represent that by a graph. And then I thought I'd better throw in a chemistry example. In chemistry, graph theory can be used to, to describe the molecules. There's a chemical molecule you can represent by a graph. The vertices would be the atoms, and the edges would represent, would represent the, the connection between the chemical bonds. So let's suppose, for example, you want to count the alkanes, or what we used to call the paraffins in my day. So these are hydrocarbons that just consist of carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms. Now back to your school days, you may have asked your, sorry I've gone too far ahead there, you may have asked your chemistry teacher why in an alkane, an alkane within the uh, atoms that are carbon, why do you always have 2n plus 2 hydrogen atoms? Now there's many, many different, different uh, Alkanes, but why are these were they always going to be 2 n plus 2 hydrogen atoms? And if your chemistry teacher does some graph theory, it's a very, very simple solution. Also, counting the alkanes is a graph theory problem. You could do that using graph theory. For example, you'd be very pleased to know that the number of 
of isomers of C80H6162, for example, is given by that number. That's a simple graph theory counting problem. What about the following? Let's suppose there's an accident scene and you've got to rush to the scene of the accident. You're the ambulance driver. How would you do that? So let me give an example. Yes, uh, the, the Swanee area of Mountain View, the suburb of Mountain View in the Mahalisburg area. So the accident scene is going to happen in the corner of Iber and Charles Village Road. There's the hospital. How do you get there as quickly as you possibly can? Well, of course, you represent this suburb by a graph. The street intersections and the dead edge will all be vertices. And then two streets are connected, you'll join them with an edge. So you can construct your graph. So there's your graph. It's got your 76 vertices, 111 edges. And then you attach weight to the vertices. So in this case, it'll be a tiny seconds to go from that street intersection to that street intersection at a particular given time. You do that by satellite, you can find the time. And then with this information, you're at the hospital, you've got to get to the accident scene. What is the shortest route you can do? And that is a very easy graph theory problem. In fact, your navigational systems that got you here tonight, they use graph theory to get you. How about the Chinese postman problem? Have you thought about when your mail gets delivered every day? Do you think, what route did the postman take? Or when your garbage is collected every week, do you think what route did they take to minimize the distance traveled? And that is a, a graph theory problem, because the po Chinese postman has to cover every single street in his area. He may have to repeat certain streets, because he has to deliver mail on every street. What route should he take to minimize his total distance? Let's assume he's a lazy postman, he doesn't want to get too fit, he wants to minimize the distance traveled. Well, then once again, let's take the same suburb, uh, so yeah, the post office is the corner of, of Urban and Charles Lee. So you monitor with your graph, as we did before, and the postman now, he's got all his mail, he has to deliver mail on every single street. He may have to, and on that end, he's got to repeat certain street, what which he take? And that is a very simple graph theory problem. How about this problem? You may have come across this way, the travelling salesman problem. So here you've got a collection of cities, and we know the cost between every two cities, to travel between every two cities. The salesman has to find the best way of visiting all the cities. Which route should he take? We're going to assume here that the, the distance or the cost of traveling from city X to city Y is exactly the same as the cost of going from city Y to city X. So to go from Pretoria to Joburg is just as expensive as going from Pretoria to Johannesburg. So what he'd like to do is he wants to make a round trip. He's got to visit all the cities. What route should he take to minimize the total distance traveled? So that sounds a fairly easy problem. Well, of course, you monitor the graph, and the cities represent the vertices. And you attach a weight to every edge, which will be the, the distance between those two cities. And what the traveling salesman problem asks for is what we call Hamilton cycle. Now, Hamilton cycle is a sequence of vertices with no repeated vertex, except for your initial and final vertex, and it does contain every vertex. But you want to minimize the weight on that cycle, because that represents the, the distance. So it asks for a Hamilton cycle of minimum weight. You call that an optimal Hamilton cycle. So how difficult can that be? Well, let's take an example. As a salesman, 
He's got to visit six cities, Beijing, London, Mexico City, New York, Paris, Tokyo. He's done his homework, he knows the distance in miles between the cities. He immediately draws his graph. And he can represent London and New York, he knows the distance in miles. Which route should he take? He has to visit all six cities. Does he maybe start in Tokyo, and then go to Beijing, and Paris, and London, and then Mexico City, New York, and back home again? Which route should he take to minimize the total distance? So in this case, there's actually 120 different possibilities. Let's take this example. Yes, old Saint Nick's got to do deliveries to children. He's got to visit a whole lot of cities. Which route does he take? Didn't you really thought about that? <laughs> it's actually a very challenging problem for mathematicians, especially if you add more and more cities. So let's look at how do you solve it. Put any cities to visit. One possibility is let's look at all the different routes and just pick the cheapest one. And it's easy to compute how many different routes there are. So let's suppose you add a given city. There's n minus one cities to visit. Pick any one. That's n minus one choices. When you arrive there, there's n minus two cities you still want to visit. Well, pick any one to visit. And so you go on. And the number of possible choices would be n minus one factorial. N minus expression, n minus one, and n minus two, and so on. It's a little bit easier because you can, it doesn't matter which direction you travel. If you go to, from Joburg to Bloemfontein to Poch back to Joburg, it's exactly the same as Joburg, Poch, Bloemfontein. So you can divide by two. So the number of tours, the number of which you have is a half in minus one factorial. But that's a large number. For example, if n equals 15, there's really about 53 and a half billion such tours. So if you look at each one and pick the shortest one, it's going to start getting very complicated. For example, let's suppose, to take a practical example, Santa's going to visit the, the UJ math students, all 3,038 of them. They worked hard, worked consistently. How many routes are there? How many different options are there? Well, this is how many there are. This is the number. And in fact, it carries on the bottom there, it's going to carry on. And at the bottom, it still carries on. In fact, it carries on for quite a few slides. That's how many tours there are. This carries on quite a while. So that's a very large number. And it's, you cannot use supercomputing to do it. You'll be here for billions of decades, of years, sorry. So there's no efficient way to solve the traveling salesman problem. It's deceptively simple. And that's the beauty of graph theory. You can very easily state the problems but it becomes very challenging to solve them. And to date, there actually is no known solution for this. In fact, if you solve it, you get a million dollars. That's one of the, the identified seven problems. But it's, the consensus among mathematicians is that there's infinitely easier ways to earn a million dollars. This is a very hard way to earn a million dollars. <laughs> What you do then is you look at approximation algorithm. Your boss wants you to visit all the cities. You can't tell him there's too many choices. It's too difficult to compute it. You've got to visit the cities. So what you do is you want to you find your restricts for efficient algorithms. They won't give you the optimal solution, but it won't be too far away from the optimal solution. It won't be too expensive for the company. 
So what they did in practice is they examined bumblebees. Now bumblebees, like a traveling thousand problem, have to visit all the, ne the flowers, collect nectar, and go back to the nest. It's exactly the same problem. They've got to minimize the route taken. And the approach that they take is the nearest neighbor heuristic. It's called a weedy algorithm. Wherever they are, they look at the, the nearest flower to visit, and they visit that flower. Now, in practice, it works out okay, but it could be the absolute worst strategy you could do. But anyway, they, they followed the bees. So they discovered that the bees follow, use the nearest neighbor heuristic with a bit of trial and error. So what the researchers did at the Premier University is they outfitted these bumblebees with these radio transponders and they placed five artificial flowers in the form of a hexagon 50 meters apart. Now the size of a bumblebee is less than a third of it. So bumblebees couldn't use their sight, they had to fly around uh, to find their targets. And they were rather cruel, they only put in, so there's the bumblebee, they put on this transponder to to follow their, their route. And each of these artificial flowers, they only put a little bit of nectar in. In fact, one-fifth of the capacity that the bee can carry. So the bumblebee had to visit all five flowers. And then they examined the route that the bumblebee took. So they put a bit of sucrose in each flower, and then they examined how the bees work out the optimal route. And as I said, they play, apply the nearest name heuristic, they visited the flower close to the nest, next to the flower, etc. Once they got their first route, they modified it using trial and error until they found a short route. And of the 120 possible routes, after 20, they found that full route. So a lot of newspapers then claim that the bees have solved the traveling cells problem, <laughs> but there's only five cities involved. It's not more complicated with more. Let's look at Sudoku. You all have played Sudoku when you get home from work. This is a 9 by 9 word, 81 cells. It's divided into 9 squares and 9 cells, and use the numbers 1 through to 9. The rule is that no digits may be repeated in the same column row or 3 by 3 subword. And they start with a clue. They fill in some of the cells, and the puzzle then is to, is to fill in the remaining cells with the digits 1 through to 9, so that every digit appears once in every row, every column, and every 3 by 3 subword. So there's an example. They give you a clue. You go down to complete the, the, the grid, and you've got to complete it so that... I'm a little bit worried here that some of these colors may not come out. Anyway, you complete the grid. So... The Sudoku puzzle appears in the daily newspaper. In most bookshops, you'll be able to find Sudoku. In fact, it appears everywhere. <laughs> but graph theory is everywhere. So what we're going to do is show you how you can use graph theory to solve Sudoku. So what we do is, to apply graph theory, we represent each cell with a vertex. And if two cells are in the same row, column, or 3 by 3 subgroup, you join them with an edge, a line segment. The resulting graph we're going to form a Sudoku graph. So 81 vertices, lots of edges. And the problem then in graph theory is what we call a graph coloring problem. So let me explain it to you. There's your Sudoku grid. 
Now, these numbers, 1 through 9, you could have used any symbol. In fact, you could have used colors. So let's use colors. So what should we color well? What's the most important color? I'll give you a clue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we color one with orange. That should be orange. I don't know why it's quite yellow. I hope these colors are all distinct. Two would be red, which is unfortunately orange. <laughs> and there's and you color each. Remember, each color appears exactly once in each row, column, and uh, three must be separate. And you color all the vertices. So there's your coloring. Throw away the numbers, remove the numbers, and you construct your graph as I mentioned. If two vertices are in the same row, column, or subgroup, you join it with an edge. Now, over here, these 36 edges are all present. I've just put those in. Along that row, all 36 edges in, I've just put in the eight over there. And these 36 edges should all be in, I've just put in a few there. So all these are joined. And let's throw away the grid. There's your graph. So, what you want to do is with nine colors, you've got to color the slope of graph. But every color, if two vertices are joined with an edge, they must be colored differently. This, this is where a graph coloring is. You assign colors to vertices, one color per vertex, so that if two vertices are joined with an edge, they must be colored differently. And we call the resulting covering of the slope of graph a slope of coloring. So there's your slope of coloring. I've used nine colors, and if two vertices are joined with an edge, they color differently. So, the set of clues corresponds to what we call a partial coloring, which we want to extend to the whole graph. So there's your, that's the set of clues they give you, and if you just translate it to a coloring, make the colors, go back to our graph, then what we've got is, this is your partial coloring. And you want to extend the coloring to a full coloring of the graph. So it's a graph coloring problem. The questions that come to mind then are firstly, can you do it? Is it possible to, to extend the coloring? Is it unique? If I give you a partial coloring, can you uniquely extend it to a coloring? If not, how many stupid colorings are there? Is there a systematic way of determining the colorings? Can you use all your graph theory algorithms to color it? And so on. Given a partial coloring, how much information is needed to specify unique Sudoku color. So let's take this one question. What are the minimum number of vertices that need to be colored in partial coloring in order to force the remaining vertices to be colored in exactly one color? So there are examples where you need to only color 17 vertices. And then you force out. So if I color these seven, these 17 vertices are colored. Those are dynasty colors. If you color the remaining vertices with the nine colors so that every two adjacent vertices are colored differently, there's only one way of doing it. The question is, can I make it tougher for you? Can I drop that to 16 possibly? And that's a very difficult question. So is it possible for me to give you a partial coloring of the slope of graph with 16 vertices colored and force you to extend it in a unique way. There's no other choice of, of coloring it. Now, you may say, well, why don't look at all the possibilities? The problem is, the number of certain colorings is large. It's, it's this number, about 10 to the power 21. For each coloring, if you look at the number of partial colorings of 16 vertices, 
8160 choices. So the total number of such partial currents you look at is huge. If you use a supercomputer, that would take about 300,000 years to check. So what they did is the group of graph theorists at this university college in Dublin, they used hypergraph theory. They constructed a hypergraph, they use what they call hitting sets or transversals, and avoidable sets as your high pages, and they proved they let the computer run for at least a year and a bit. In fact, for all of 2011, their supercomputers ran, no power cuts, <laughs> and they announced that you can't solve it, you can't have a partial color with 16 colors to force a unique color. You will you will about to extend it, but not uniquely. There's many ways of doing it. Right, I'm going to close off with a, a problem I didn't say you're going to work with it. This problem is called instance insanity. Justin's going to hand out the blocks. We've got four blocks. In fact, I've got them over here. Uh, in and what you've got to do is you've just got to stack them on top of each other. So what I want you to do just to stack them on top of each other. But I want on every side, I want all four colors of theory. In this particular case, this is no good. I've got two of the same colors. I want all four colors of theory. So this, this side's almost there. That should be a red. The problem is when you just round up, you've got two yellows there. So I want all four colors of theory, all four sides. So what I'm going to do in the next two minutes, I'm going to do a little bit of math. So those of you who are not familiar with graph theory, you can just work with the puzzles and we'll solve work with the solution in the moment. So does anyone know the problem? You've got to stack these, but on all four faces, I want all four colors of theory. So you can, for those of you who probably are not too familiar with graph theory, you can do the puzzle. I won't spend two or three minutes just telling you what I do in case they think I just play games all day long. <laughs> so let's take a graph. Uh, a total dominating set of graphs is a set of vertices So everyone is adjacent to vertex in your set. And the total domination is the minimum coordinate of such a set. So you can think of it as in a graph, you want to cut a subset of vertices blue, and everybody must be joined to a blue vertex. What's the smallest number of blue vertices you need? Are there enough blocks handed out? Uh, this was introduced back from 30 years ago. So there's an example. I've cut those vertices blue, and everybody has a blue neighbor. <coughs> blue vertices is a blue neighbor. And the question is, what's the smallest number of vertices you need to cut blue with that property? In this example, I've cut eight blue. If you tried coloring any seven or fewer blue, you would not have this property. At least one village not have a blue neighbor. So the total domination under here is eight. You can't do better. And what I've done in the last couple of years, you've looked at this interplay with, with, with total domination hypergraphs. So hypergraphs, they're just an extension of a graph. Instead of, you've got vertices which are edges of multi-sets. So I'll just illustrate it rather than maybe get into too many definitions. And you want what's called a hitting set of transversal. As in the Todoka game, the way that they solved it using the hitting sets, it's a bit violent there, but I use transversals, you want a set of vertices that hit in all the edges. And you want to do that with as small a set as possible. That's your transversal number. 
is you find two what we call edge disjoint cycles containing all four vertices and all four numbers. And that's very easy to do. I'm just going to pick two of them. And then what we do is we take this call the one cycle in the cycle. So each cycle has all four distinct numbers. And let's go about stacking them. So here's my first block. I'm going to go yellow to green. And then the second block, I'm going to go green to blue. And we'll stack that. And then the third block, I'll go blue to red. Blue to red. And then I'll finish off the cycle from red to yellow. So that's the easy bit. So what I've done is, on this side here, all four colors appear. And on that side there, all four colors appear. The problem is that this, these sides aren't so great. But then you can use an outer cycle. So what you do in the outer cycle is, so let's take it here. Let's take the outer cycle green to blue. So I'm now going to turn it around its spindle. I want this to be green to blue. I'm just going to rotate it. Back on again. So I'm doing it the other way around. Well, on this one here, block four, I want blue to red. So I'm just going to rotate it along its horizontal spindle, like a blue to red. And then in block number two, I'm going to go red to yellow. So I'm just again rotating. I'm not going to adjust this side at all. I'm just going to go red to yellow. And then finally, on block number three, we're going to go yellow to green. And that's the we And then you can see that all four colors appear on all four faces. Now you may say, well, this is a little bit too much work. If you do about root force, there's over 34,000 different ways of stacking it. So if you do about root force, you will be there for hours and weeks. That's why it's called instantaneity. But if you use graph theory, you can solve it very, very quickly as you've done now. So that was just to, to try and convince you that graph theory is indeed everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Professor Henne, Professor Parek, Professor Mamba, um, Mike, particularly to you, thank you for a fascinating, fascinating presentation, very entertaining as well, showing us that graph theory is everywhere, but also that it's a beautiful, beautiful field. So thank you to you. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasure to actually read the response from Professor Kika Maynard, who, as Professor Parekh explained, can't be here. So I'm going to start off by showing you the picture of Professor Maynard and then tell you a little bit about her before I read her response. Now, Kika Maynard is very known to the colleagues here, like Professor Isa Brure. I will come to that. Uh, she was born in Cape Town and educated in Cape Town and also in Lichtenberg and Johannesburg eventually obtaining a PhD from the Uni University of Johannesburg, formerly known as, as the RIU, 
and the supervision, the supervision of Professor Isaac Brewer over there. Isaac, just put up your hand. So in mathematics, we talk about when we talk about the supervisor, we talk about the father of, of the student. So uh, Isaac Brewer is the father of of Kika Maynard. She first taught at the University of Pretoria and then the University of South Africa, where she held a professorship from 1992 to 2002. In 2002, she immigrated to Canada, where she is now a full professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Victoria. She has published about 150 scientific publications seen in referee journals and regularly presents her work at conferences. In 2005, she was one of the five uh, recipients of the Alumni Dignitas Award uh, of the University of Johannesburg. She twice received the Chancellor's Prize for Research in the Faculty of Science at UNISA, and she also uh, received a World Math Year 2000 Gold Medal for Research from the NRF. She serves on the editorial board of four mathematics journals, and uh, Professor Parekh, she was also the first uh, NRF A-rated woman scientist in South Africa, and that she received in 1994. So it is indeed my honor to read to Mike the response from Kika. I'm greatly honored to, res to respond to Professor Michael Henning's inaugural professorial address. I've known Mike since he was a young, enthusiastic master student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban under the supervision of the eminent Professor Henderswar. The world, and in particular South Africa, have seen enormous changes since those days, and all of us have changed as well. I have watched, sometimes from a distance, sometimes close up, my growth from an inexperienced student to a world leader in our field. From hardly more than a boy, to husband, to Anne, and father, to John and Alison. Graphs are indeed everywhere. They are widely used to model both natural and human-made structures. They can process dynamics in computer science, and in physical, chemical, biological, and social systems. They can be applied to process digital images and to pattern recognition problems. As Mike illustrated, many problems of practical interest, such as the handshaking problem, the bridges of Königsberg problem, the Sudoku problem can be represented by graphs. The most widely known application of graph theory to an everyday problem is the four-color problem. And the problem is, is it possible to color the regions of any map, real or imaginary, with four or fewer colors so that adjacent regions get different colors? The four-color problem easily translates to a graph theory problem, and for more than a hundred years, the development of graph theory was inspired and guided mainly by this problem. When it was finally proved in 1976 that such a map coloring was indeed possible, 
it marked a milestone in the development of graph theory as well. Like the rest of the world, the graph theory world has changed enormously over the last 30 years. And she quotes from the book Graph Theory by G.A. Bondi and U.S.R. Murthy. And I quote, Since the resolution of the four-color problem, the subject has experienced explosive growth due in large measures to its role as an essential structure underpinning modern applied mathematics. Computer science and optimization in particular draw upon and contribute to the development of the theory of graphs. Moreover, in a world where communication is of prime importance, the facility of graph theory makes them indispensable tools in the design and analysis of communication networks. Mike's area of speciality within graph theory is called domination theory, where he has delivered the best work of his career on a topic known as total domination. His work on total domination and transversals in hypergraphs firmly places him in the top echelon of researchers working in domination theory. He has received well-deserved worldwide recognition for the quality and impact of his contributions. He collaborates widely and is an amazing speaker at conferences, as we also experienced this evening. In addition to his own research, he serves on the editorial board of a number of internationally acclaimed journals, thus performing an essential and much appreciated service to the graph theory community. Through all the changes in Mike's life and career, there have been a number of constant factors. He remains as enthusiastic about his research and his teaching as ever, and has retained his humbleness and modesty as rare a quality in the world of mathematics as in the world of sport. I'm immensely proud that he has accepted the professorship at my alma mater, the University of Johannesburg. Mike, please accept my heartfelt congratulations and my very best wishes for the future. I wish I could be, I could be there tonight to tell you this in person. Thank you. Professor Hing, I'm going to be going home with these cubes. <laughs> and when I finally figured out this puzzle, I'm going to call you and tell you I understood graph theory. <laughs> I also want to say, Professor Hing, that had I known that all of life centered around graph theory and all of life's problems could be resolved around graph theory, I would have made sure that I would not get lost in Johannesburg. <laughs> I also want to ask you that if graph theory can get us from one, just one place to another in the quickest possible time, does graph theory take into account traffic? <laughs> but on that note, I just want to, on behalf of the University of Johannesburg, welcome Professor Henning to the August body of, of professoriates at the university. We are extremely proud and, and delighted uh, to have you with us at the University of Johannesburg and to have the privilege of listening to your inaugural address this evening. Thank you very much.
Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct honor again to say thank you very much for your attendance and participation. Please join us in refreshments. We've got lots of wine and lots of nice food. Thank you very much. Please stand while the procession leaves. I forget about that sometimes.